welcome to Afro Leads, the podcast. Afro Leads, as you all know, consists of two sisters, Julie and Steph, and we're on a mission to promote Black British business and culture. At present, we have multiple social media platforms, which vary from Twitter, Facebook, but predominantly Instagram, where we post and promote everything from Black British business, groups, communities, celebrities, music, and so much more. So hello and welcome and allow me to introduce today's gracious guest, a king, a world record swimmer, writer and award-winning broadcaster, Mr. Ayo Akinwaleri. That's pretty dope entry, very nice intro, I will take that. Yeah, thank you. Always nice to butter up the talent before you start talking to them. <laughs> so allow me to continue further with uh, what we posted about you on our page. So um, I was born in Nigeria and he immigrated to Birmingham when he was eight years old. He went on to study for a BA in media studies at Sheffield Hallam University. Whilst working as a runner for the BBC, I was spotted and landed the job as presenter on Blue Peter. He presented the show for from 2006 to 2011 and performed many incredible challenges, the most notable perhaps of which is the swim challenge, which led him to become the proud holder of not one, but two swimming records for deep and open water swimming. What is astounding is that a few weeks prior to taking on this challenge, Io couldn't swim. So at the time he was quoted as saying that he hoped by completing this challenge, he was able to inspire more children from ethnic minorities to learn to swim. Further still, Io used this experience to create the swim challenge, which saw 50 non-swimming adults of various ethnicities take up the challenge to learn to swim in 2015. post on Blue Peter, Io has made documentaries such as the 2012 Usain Bolt documentary and has presented and contributed to a number of popular programmes on a variety of TV channels. Io currently hosts the Premier League Today show, the Sports Squad podcast and the Juju Music radio show on Soho Radio. The latter celebrates West African music. And in 2016, when you were 33, Io decided to use his first name, which is Odo Io, Io for short, yeah. which means Year of Joy in Yoruba. He had previously used his middle name, which is Andrew or Andy, but felt that he no longer wanted to anglicise his identity. Io, we see you and we thank you and welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Man, that was a good intro. <laughs> funny like I, I think you know when you when you do what you do sometimes you don't sort of look back and I don't do that I hadn't done that enough and actually more more and more now I'm looking back at some of the things that I've done and things that I've achieved and sort of starting to honestly pat myself on the back and I think something culturally anyway as a, as a Nigerian that we don't mm -hmm. often uh, we always look forward what's next what's next what's next how do we build how do we make how do we evolve and actually sometimes it's quite beautiful to look back and think hold on a second um, you know it's been a, a quite a, a scary treacherous hard arduous journey but actually within that time we've done quite a lot of amazing stuff and uh, I'm very proud when you read all that stuff out, actually it's really really cool so thank you very much there's another first to add you our first blue tick personality on our podcast <laughs> so next time you go on the next interview mention mention that legit one. legit it's official <laughs> legit 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 no 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 thank you for having me uh, you know it, it's so mad isn't it like because um, I think for me even from a very young age all I've ever wanted to do was like create some sort of legacy for my kids that come after me and sort of I guess make my family proud in many respects so um, a lot of people don't know but my granddad was like I'm quite a big pillar of the community in Nigeria who was like the leader of the Methodist church um, in Nigeria and like although I'm not so religious anymore but you know I came from that sort of background and uh, my granddad studied at Cambridge you know written several books and um, 
pictures in my mom's house where my mom grew up with my granddad with Pope John Paul in the Vatican, you know, like, so my granddad's done a lot. And I, I think for, for all his grandkids anyway, there's always been that kind of, not an expectation necessarily, but that kind of like, do you know what? We, we are here for this time, but while we're here, we need to do something really special. And hopefully, you know, that, that that's what I'm building towards. Definitely. And I can see it's already here and you're yeah. still so young. So gosh, good. Well, you know, fresh, fresh. Thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And it's also good not to be kind of overwhelmed by such an impressive family legacy, but be inspired by it to then, as you say, do your part in the story as it unfolds. That's yeah definitely no thank yeah for sure for sure and I don't know like I, I still sort of think I don't know about everyone's family but I, I feel like my Nigerian family anyway there's always that sense of expectation of what you want to do or what you need to do and you know even me crafting a, a career for myself in the media industry has definitely defied their expectations of me in many respects you know I didn't go down the doctor route I didn't go down the law route or anything um, more vocational in that respect but actually I still think the impact on a visual sense need, need, needs to have happened and uh, it was always my dream to do something visually whether it be creating or being the front of something to sort of lament myself in, in British history really and show some sort of duality to a lot of British people's lives that often don't get represented you know I'm, I'm both Nigerian and British and I'm able to celebrate that proudly now as an adult but that's been an evolution as well in itself. We can relate to that definitely. Yeah, definitely. I just wonder what was it like um, when you came here as an eight-year-old in terms of what were you, what was your expectation of yeah. the UK? Was that um, met? And also, was it intended to be for the long haul? You know, um, like, like I don't know, like um, I, I, I thought to be similar to a lot of other. Um, migrant families that came that have come to the UK not even just from Nigeria but from various other countries in the in terms that my parents always thought they were going to go back to Nigeria to the point where we had even had a plot of land they were building a house and then that slowly changed because your kids get embedded into the system and you know um, life kind of changes and you know the priorities change as your kids are starting to become I guess more British and we had they had another child here as well which made him British so yeah I mean a lot changed and that that piece of land uh, now is lived on by someone we don't know uh, it's like a thing that happens like it happens in the Caribbean as well where people just like well no one owns this land I'm taking it uh, so, that's kind of what happened, really. um, so yeah we dare not go back and go can we have our house back please it's like they've literally built a home there with a family and stuff like that but um yeah I mean growing up in Birmingham at the age of eight was mad um like, like like most families are, are people that have come from countries that are former british colonies you always have this sort of rose tinted view of britain don't you like you know that the idea that you know this is the land of opportunity all that kind of stuff um the land of the queen bear in mind you know the, the queen was our ruler for many years and you know that indoctrination is very hard to shake off but like most other people that came here, the reality was very different for us. And my dad came over. The reason we came over was because my dad came over on a scholarship to do uh, some study for the meningitis vaccine in the 90s. And that was his PhD. That was what he's he came for you know much like now where there's a pandemic with covid like they brought some of the greatest minds from abroad and to you know really help find this vaccine or do some studies towards it and you know i guess when he finished his thing he was surplus to requirements and he, he really struggled to find work in academia which i think was where he sort of wanted to sit really i think a lot of people don't realize this this actually quite little in terms of black professors in britain and it's really really hard actually so my dad ended up working in a petrol station really for many years till he sort of found himself and I still don't sort of think he's fully found himself and he, he falls into this category of a lot of which I've been reading about more recently a lot a lot of and it's usually men actually African men that might come over and become really disillusioned by the system and what they also keep doing is keep doing more and more exams because they think they haven't got enough qualifications and what they really don't really 
fully grasps that the system's completely against him in many respects. Um, so my dad's weirdly got a PhD. He's got two masters. He just keeps doing more and more qualification because he thinks he needs to do more and more and more. But actually, I think what I never really, I've been trying to articulate to dad is that it's a systemic thing. We need to, you need to sort of figure out that the system in Nigeria is so different to the system here and how the nepotism that's existing within it and all that kind of stuff needs to be sort of understood because actually you're overqualified if anything and also he had this danger where he was going for jobs that he was overqualified for um and they'd be like well i mean your cv is like you shouldn't be here you know because you're professor level mate you shouldn't be looking for and and the reality is he couldn't get to those levels so you know that that's a lot of and it's something i think a lot of people don't probably haven't addressed with their with their parents is that it's it, it's, a, it's a mental strain in, in terms of mental health in terms of um, what you think you can achieve and what you dreamt of achieving and coming here and, and, and seeing that kind of stuff was really difficult luckily my mom was a nurse or she's still a nurse and you know she was a sole breadwinner in the family so it also taught me a lot about the matriarch of the family and sort of the dynamics that can be you know of, of women being the head of the household in many respects you know um, my dad I guess typically on a Nigerian sense should be the head of the household but my mom basically ran stuff um, which I'm grateful for but also that 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 had uh, a fraught element to their relationship as well and England was hard like at the beginning because I think you know very aware of racism really really early on I remember when my parents bought their first house and you know we'd been here for maybe seven or eight years and they'd saved up every penny that they had to finally buy a home in an area in Birmingham that wasn't the best but it was a home for their five children you know like finally you what we've contributed to society we paid our taxes all that kind of stuff we finally get on the property ladder like any regular British family would love, love to do and aspire to and um, the National Front spray painted our door yeah the day we moved in and I remember my dad was telling me like you know we had to wipe it off the fence because he didn't want us to see it when we got it up um so you know it, it's it's really really interesting because you know this is no not too dissimilar to the story of the Irish it's not too dissimilar to the story of the Caribbeans it's not too dissimilar to the story of many people that come from African countries whereby you know the the streets are the PR that the England um, and Great Britain exports is this land of civilization and gentry and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people aspire to those ideals, but actually the reality sometimes for a lot of people, it isn't that. And um, I, I'm just very thankful because, you know, I guess in Nigeria, we were a, a middle-class Nigerian family. Like um, my dad traveled across the world, you know, traveled across North America, traveled across Europe. My dad was studying to be a pediatrician. My mom's a nurse. So they're two, we're very middle-class family, both gone to university, um, both went to boarding school in Nigeria, you know, so that you've got a really rich middle-class ideal there in many respects. And my mom lived in Japan when she was younger as a nurse. So we've got also like a real worldly view. My dad speaks French. We lived in France a little bit. So, you know, there are so many things that define us as a middle-class family in Nigeria but coming to Britain we basically were lower working class British and that was that was really tough and and what we knew what we had and what we have now in the UK it was a real a tricky one for our family but um, thankfully my parents strong ideals and Nigerian aspirations for their kids to be educated and all that kind of stuff really got us all to where we are and I, I look at my other four siblings and I look at where we are now and I think you know what our parents just were they're just strong-minded individuals and they want best for their children and we're all very independent in our own right all have our own jobs all have our own identities and it's because of their persistence for us to do better and to ask for more and um, to want better but also a lot of people don't realize you know I grew up in a country of black excellence you know I was surrounded by doctors I was surrounded by lawyers I was surrounded by heads of state that look like me and so I've always had those ideals in, in deep down inside right um so that will never go away it's the juxtaposition and the fight between the system and I find myself versus what I was 
that's always been the issue that's sort of been the, the thing that's always been a bit of an issue really but um yeah England was was tough um navigating through school as well was tough my name was tough you know for for a lot of uh, for a lot of reasons and you, you sort of touched on it there at the in your intro on you know being Andy I think you know knowing my dad and I don't that's how it was his fault I don't know but you he used my name Andy as which is my middle name as as my first name or Andrew as my first name and I think you know that fear for kids especially black kids uh, West African kids sort of fitting in for any parent that's come to a new country is probably it was always at the forefront of his mind my mom actually wanted us to keep our Nigerian names my dad was sort of adamant that we go with our English names and and actually what what's been strange and over time is the reason I went back to my Nigerian name is because uh, for me Andrew or Andy basically represented assimilation and I wanted to assimilate but also wanted to be authentic you know I'm, I'm happy to take on the laws I'm happy to take on some of the stuff that that my new country has offered me but um I also wanted who I was deep down inside to be part of that equation not just having to fully assimilate so I think Andy and Andrew even when I was on Blue Peter really felt like a different guy to the guy I am now really I mean many respects it's really interesting hearing you talk about your your personal and your family's experience but mm-hmm. but that thing about assimilation I think it's looking different for people of our generation and We've had conversations before, haven't we? I think because, so our parents are Ghanaian and we were both born here and Ghana in its history was a British colony as well. So there's that kind of echo or the the shadow of colonialism. So, and I think a lot of middle-class or just generally, there's a lot of people within Ghana. So both our parents, their first names are English names. They do have Ghanaian names, but they've got English Mm -hmm. names as first names. Very common. The kind of natural progression is that they're going to give their kids English names as, as first names we, we all have Ghanaian names that's fantastic but, but then um it, it's it's all about trying to fit in that assimilation is is kind of paramount above all costs but then mm-hmm. it comes mm-hmm. a point where so like one of our brothers um he he's one of his his first name um or given name was Andrew as well but he when he was 18 when he just went to college decided to use one of his Ghanaian names instead so he's known by different names by different people depending on when they met him yeah, same, same, yeah. and it's just really fascinating how as I said earlier you define your identity what you want to be called is, is up to you and, and and for whatever reason is up to you too and but it's just it's really powerful that you, you can have that you can make that decision and it, it, that in itself sparks conversations interesting conversations it's not a kind of rejection in my mind of no. the culture with which you're in you just as you say you want to be true to yourself and you define what that is when you were um, at school, just to ask, I'm just intrigued massively just because of my own experiences with my middle name being Ghanaian middle names. When you were at school, was it just yourself as the, as the, as the kind of, not to use the term token, but the only black child in that school or was there other African families? Birmingham is fascinating because Birmingham is such as where I grew up. Um, Birmingham is like such a multicultural um, city. Um, mm-hmm huge Caribbean population, huge African population and Indian, Bangladeshi, Asian population. So it's always been quite quite an interesting melting pot. My primary school was actually very white middle class. We actually went to quite a nice primary school because my parents knew some people that sort of ushered us to this school um, in this country. But I always shared school with not many Africans. I shared school often with Caribbean kids. And what a lot of people don't realise is that actually the relationship between West Africa and many Caribbean countries is actually or fraught a lot of people don't realize it's actually there was there was a lot of angst between two cultures there and you know me coming here I was deemed as the freaking 
too bright, too good, too goody two shoes African kid in the Caribbeans from our side with the, you know, delinquent, naughty criminals, all that kind of stuff. So even I was trying to navigate that because I just thought black is black, right? And I didn't even realize that actually there's some issues between black communities that we haven't really dealt with as well. And I, I guess, you know, what was tricky um, for me was really wearing that band of my West African culture. Um, I, I mean, you can't deny or can't I can't hide from Akin Waleri. And that was for me, you know, you, couldn't, you can say Andrew, right? But Akin Waleri is a very Nigerian name. That's a Yoruba <laughs> boy name, you know, real talk. Um, and um, yeah, like, I mean, that I, I was a butt of jokes, you know, it was a, a Andrew Akin Malaria for many years, you know, malaria being a big killer in an African, African country. It's like, and you're basically taking that and turning that into my name, you know, that permeated to secondary school in many respects so you know it, kids can be cruel in many respects and you know uh, anything to pick on someone anything to other someone in those situations the surname is, is a very easy one you know I was always good at many things sport English I was good at so many things because like you know I was saying I brought up in a in a country and around excellence in many respects so you know it, it was tricky I was never the token black guy because that's what I if I'm honest it's one of the beauties of growing up in Birmingham like you know it is 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 that you're you're around so many cultures but allowing myself to come out as me that was tough at, yeah. in many respects because look the schools are predominantly white based on demographic period so you know for me my journey through school and I'm sure you probably identify with this was about being white or trying to adopt a white identity in many respects because a lot of my mates were also not just Caribbean actually the few Caribbean black friends that I had but you know I had a lot of Irish white friends who are Irish Catholic because I was Catholic so we understand each other on that respect but you know I was basically out with all the Irish boys like you know I was the only black guy in a group of white Irish guys and that had its issues massively hugely stuff they'd say about black people sometimes I'd be like Ooh, what do I say here you know so you kind of have to shut your mouth and it's that kind of like oh you're all right brother you're one of us in it like you're one of us you're one of us but realistically it's like yeah but you know what you're, you're taking you're taking the piss out of people that look like me like you know yeah. all the time and it puts you in such a weird situation because you're like do I stand up for this but I'm not you know I I, I want to stand up for my people but I just don't feel like I'll be heard amongst this group of people. So you just end up just sort of assimilating and shrugging your shoulders and going along with it or just not saying anything. And actually what I realized is over and over time that just chipped away at my self-esteem, that chipped away at how I felt about my culture. And if anything, it made me want to hide more of my authenticity even more. And because I just saw the reaction to it when people ignorantly would see something was more authentic and just be like, well, that's a bit weird or I'm not into that. Like, you know, and even stuff along the lines of dating at school, like, you know, I, it, it sounds dark, deep, but like you know, you were never on anyone's top ten. Like you know, when all, oh, all, all I feel, feel the pain. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's so weird. Like people would be like, oh, "Who's the hottest at school?" And you'd just be like, "No, not you." All right, yeah. And and then you know, hottest girls, no black girls, no Indian girls in that group. But you and then you'd be like, "Oh yeah, like Claire's hot, man. Claire's so hot, yeah, yeah." And you start adopting this, even though I thought like Michelle, who was the hottest penguin like Jamaican girl at school was the one I didn't want to really say it because I was like you know I don't know yeah yeah I guess Claire's hottest yeah woo <laughs> yeah and it's so true you never made anyone's top 10 and I was just like and that in itself is a validation or um, it's not validating who you are as, as as a beautiful black person you know yeah. like in that environment you've just made me think actually I did make somebody's top 10 but then 
on further inquiries because he was like, oh, well, you'll actually make something of yourself so I can become a house husband. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Backhanded compliment. <laughs> but it's so true. It's so true. I think, and it is, it's, it's those growing pains and it's those informative years where you start like appreciating what is talent, what's acceptable, what potentially is going to make you successful. And as a, you know, somebody who was, I was, you know, quite in with some of the popular people at school and they're, you know, still amazing, lovely people, but I didn't look like any of them at all. I never was on the same sort of spectrum in terms of even like, let's share clothes, you know, that, you know, they don't have big asses, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Totally <laughs> it's not big it's just you like develop at different rates but you don't appreciate that because like we grew up we um where yeah we, we were like often the only black we were the only black child in the school or yeah. if, only, if there was another black child it was your sibling with wasn't it really, yeah wherever we've been so we, it's quite quite different but um yeah so it's nice you know it's quite nice and refreshing <laughs> to hear this from other people because we have these chats as like siblings and stuff but it's it is it's really refreshing to know that it wasn't just us it's really sad as well it's in the same breath that you know even just your conversation about the the door and the you know the national front and all that stuff we, we never even went through anything like that but to have your parents have to manage that plus your teenage angst and other questions that you would have had just as we've had but plus more it's 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 must have been such a confusing time for the family in general not just you it's yeah, and, and, and you, you look at certain situations and you look at your parents falling out over certain things and that as an adult, you know, we're, we're all at the age now where we could possibly have our own children and, you know, mm -hmm. relationships and whatnot. And you see it and you think, do you know what? Even now, I don't know how on earth I'd equip myself enough to be able to defend or help my kids in that situation if I did have them. Like, it's so deep. Also, navigating a new world, like trying to put food on the table, all those pressures are ridiculous. Like how my parents are still together. I'm like, what the, you know, and, and, and it, it's, it's an interesting journey really, because, you know, I, I think, you know, there's so many isms that so many black people understand through school and, you know, there have been uh, racism, you know, sexism, you know, otherisms, like you, you could basically annotate so many black journeys through school because, you know, society is predominantly white so some of those will definitely exist because we will always be a minority but I think for me what really sits behind it even with the national front and it's something I'm really interested in is you know what is taught to these young people from an early age because if they don't see people like us you know in history then they will not acknowledge us as something of substance and then yeah. that's the reality I can't you know, that ignorance is kind of understandable in a weird way because they don't know any different. Right. You know, the teachers don't know any different. So even when you're dealing with stuff in school when it comes to racism, and who do you tell? You're going to talk to that teacher and go, well, yeah, blah, 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 I've been calling me names. And they, yeah, they kind of deal with it, but they don't really deal with it properly. No, you know, it, do they? in terms of black kids who are, you know, maybe naughty at school, being expelled at the drop of a hat for being a bit naughty. You're like, well... Have you even thought about how they're navigating the situation in any way, shape or form? Have you even thought that, you know, their home life versus school life? Could, there are so many isms they're having to deal with before they walk out that front door and they get to the school gate and the way the teachers treat them in terms of the way other people treat them. I mean, there's so much to understand here and they don't even see themselves in history. So how are they going to sit still and identify with what you're teaching them if they don't even understand or see themselves in anything you're talking about? And I, I look at it like... Um, one of the so I was really good at English at school and I don't know whether it was my 
teacher's prerogative or not. So I really got into Shakespeare. So my mom, my mom's a big like theatre fan. Like we brought up an opera and stuff, which is weird. Like <laughs> my mom just loves opera. She loves cool. this uh, Figaro, the, the death of Figaro. I was like, mom, I can't do this. Like Figaro, that was literally my life. Watching this stuff, musicals, sound of music. Like my mom grew up in high culture in Nigeria. So like a lot of people don't, you know, that's my background, right? So I love Shakespeare. And we all, my, my parents were, I used to study Julius Caesar. Oh, what a play. You know, but that's my dad. That was the conversations my parents were having when we were young. So I really got into Shakespeare and it was Othello that, that, that changed it for me because oh, it, wow, that yeah. and To Kill a Mockingbird, to be honest with you, by the time I got to that point in school, where you're you're learning about the these characters black protagonists or black people being discriminated against and you can understand the you know the relationship between Othello and Iago um if anyone doesn't know Othello's a a, a black guy is a Moor who's like the leader of the Venetian army and then you've got Iago who's his lieutenant who wants to be who's white who wants to be Othello but Othello is just 10 times better than him. It's just excellent by nature. Othello also has the most beautiful woman on his arm, Desdemona, who's, you know, Babancio, who's a father. He's like, you know, the, one of the biggest pillars of Venetian society. So he's got the most beautiful girl on his arm. He's the leader of the Venetian army. And, you know, and he just does it naturally. So the play is basically about how Iago ends up manipulating Othello to the point in which he kills himself. And it's really, really fascinating because uh, for me, even at an early age, I could identify with this story of like Iago being the system at large, you know, in terms of uh, you know, this huge proportion of actually, I think black men are the highest when it comes to mental health problems yeah. in, in, in Britain, you know, and you can understand how a system that doesn't allow you to validate who you are openly continually crushes your self-esteem. It gets you to second guess yourself. It gets you to try and figure out whether you're you're worthy or not, you know. Anyway, Othello ends up killing himself. And I remember that story so vividly that I wrote so vividly about it. I got like an A in English literature. And obviously, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, Axtica's Fish versus, you know, help, you know, trying to basically clear a black man of a crime he didn't commit. It's so fascinating. And that resonated so much more with a lot of the pupils in, in my class because you know we all grew up in working class Birmingham as well so there was a that kind of the underdog story that's going on there as well which is really really interesting I thought it was actually a stroke of genius for my teacher whether she meant to do it or not to introduce those books to us because I finally saw myself yeah. in literature I was like whoa this is amazing and and I, I went off and that for me opened up the portal to Shakespeare like I do Shakespeare stuff with the RIC now because I love the content and I love those stories stories even that even though many of those protagonists are white but there's something about othering that i think shakespeare understands really well and a lot of his characters from like katarina in the taming of the shrew it's really powerful is you know she's a woman who wants to be closed in and isn't allowed to basically be herself because society doesn't want her to be herself and she's the last to get married in her family and basically the taming of the shrew is that a, a man who ends up basically pursuing her in a big feat to try and tame her which is mad because that's again that is the you know that is a story of mo the modern day woman being able to be herself in society and then we flip that to the modern day black woman it, it, you've got so many sort of things that are sort of surrounding that so for me you know if kids aren't able to see themselves through history, through literature, through so many angles within the school system, you do have that disillusion. And, you know, for me, kids are hiding because they don't feel they're able to come forward as their most authentic selves. Yeah, no, definitely. But you having the profile that you have, like, it's so powerful, you know, your role as a Blue Peter presenter, you're the first mm -hmm. black male Blue Peter presenter. And that mm -hmm. is, I mean, and you'll not know that the, the levels that that has had 
not just yeah. within the culture, but outside, because the people have seen you in that position, yeah. presenting the challenges. It, it's just, it's so powerful because, you know, we, we really do champion. Representation is vital. It matters. Yeah. We're finding out stuff all the time. I'm finding out That's information different. about pre doctors, nurses, that have paved the way that I didn't even know about. And I'm like, if I knew about these people 15, 20 years ago, perhaps the trajectory of my life would have been different because I would have had that kind of precedence, that personal precedence. Because yeah. even though I didn't see it in the situations I found myself in, I would have been aware of them historically. They would have gone through similar things worse, likely, but still, you know, it's so powerful, it's so necessary. You know? Definitely. Um, but that, yeah. that, that falls into the notion of like who's who is responsible for putting those stories out. Yeah. Because if you've got a system that's predominantly of one demographic, then those nuanced and beautiful stories of black pioneers doesn't resonate because you know people really only you know, go to highlight those that look like themselves. You talk about Blue Peter being amazing. I, I, did, uh, I did a keynote speech the other day and I was sort of looking through my career. And, you know, even after that, having two BAFTA nominations, the, you know, world record, all this kind of stuff, I really struggled to find work, you know, like no one was going to take me on. You'd go to these meetings and people would be like, so, you know, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to be a traveler. I want to show the world, you know, like that's what I do. I've been, I've been to 108 in different cities around the world. And you realize that's a space occupied by white middle-class men. Yeah. Um, and they don't want another story. And I remember, you know, talking to the Daily Telegraph at the time, so weird because they've actually deleted now the story. You know, they asked me, you know, this, this rogue um, reporter, was like you know what do you think about diversity in the industry I was like look mate you know and it was shortly after I did Downton and Ice um and he's like I was like you know it was like well I was like for me it's important to have representation across the board so I'm all up for Attenborough's Dimblebees doing what they do they're very well respected journalists but you know if, if we could get like a young Ethiopian uh British lad to go to Ethiopia and enthuse about Ethiopia yeah, that, that voyage of discovery just adds something a little different. Also, the doors that are going to be opening to a young black man going back to his home country are so much more different than a white guy, yeah. middle-class man, well-spoken. And those doors are very, very different. And the access that young man will have will be so much more different. And, you know, for me, I was like, you know, when we have Chinese people, why are they only limited to chefs in British society? You know, like we only see Chinese cooks. Um, where, I mean, Chinese people have this wealth of history that we could really tap into. And they should be protagonists as well, just to give a real accurate view of Britain in general and, and how we travel. And the headline was, Andy hates white television. And I was just like, that's not what I'm trying to say. Like, I'm just saying that, like, we need to do more, do better. I, just, I mean, I, I, for six to eight months, I couldn't get a meeting with anyone because, like, they were like, uh, yeah, we find things. Or when you did get a meeting, the, the subjects of those discussions were like, well, you do know we're incredibly diverse. And so you become, become, <laughs> you become the naughty one. And no one wants to deal with naughty one because they're like, you just, well, you, you should be lucky for where you are, mate, you know. But that's not what I'm saying. We're totally okay to assimilate. I'm totally okay to play the game. But I'm just like, we just need to do better. We need to do more. It, you then realise the, the, the stakeholders, the people that hold the power, the people that are responsible for putting media out there and those stories out there are all of the same demographics. So they didn't actually see nuance beauty of the nuance you know you're talking about the community and the wider community and how impactful that might be they don't see that because it's just another story even this world record didn't gather gather much more much press because people didn't realize the importance of that they didn't realize that 
if you're an ethnic minority, you're three times less likely to swim. I had a meeting ages ago and I was telling this commissioner, I was like, I've got this idea. I really think it'd be really good if we did something on black people not swimming, because if you're an ethnic minority, you're three times less likely not to swim compared to white people. She's like, that's absolute nonsense. How could, I can't believe that's a thing. Come on, everybody can swim. And I was like, wow. Yeah. Okay, you're in a position of power. Mm-hmm. You know, you've not even checked. And I'm and also, I guarantee you, if I was a white person coming to her with that information, she would have believed them because yeah. it's, where, it's where the info was coming from. And I was revealing something to her from someone who she probably hadn't quite understood or hadn't come to terms with. She probably thought was way inferior to her. Yeah. And I'd have been really interested to know if that was a, a white middle class woman or white middle class man coming to her with that. She'd have gone, oh that could be a thing yeah and I think that's part of it who who's allowed to speak who's allowed to sit on the table who's allowed to have those opinions and I think we're still going through that even now so you're talking about not knowing about the pioneers that came before you it's completely understandable why you know even within medicine you're looking at prejudice in the way people of color are treated you know and all that kind of stuff that's because those that have been in the industry aren't being spoken to or asked who might be of color how best to deal with a black woman how best to deal with an indian woman or an indian man or whatever and are there things we need to adopt more in our practice it's it's almost like this imperialistic arrogance that yeah. this is the way it should be done because we know we have quote unquote set civilization and created civilization therefore everyone else we haven't quite addressed it is inferior when it comes to our practice it's, mad. it's about who's making the decisions as you say but i do feel that the things are changing yeah but they are changing and and part of that is it comes from us taking responsibility mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. you know just doing it yourself would you know you know if if some people would not listen just doing it having kind of the the you know the, making the means or just just putting it out there not waiting for somebody else to give something the green light or i personally think i, I really feel feel inspired to do more with the platform that i've been given to say yes to certain opportunities where I so maybe shy away. It's this whole kind of, you know, we talked about assimilation and good immigrant, bad immigrant, that kind of thing. Whatever that is, it's just, I'm going to be me. And if being me means that you see more of me or hear more of my opinion, like I've been mm. more vocal and people yeah. are saying, oh, that's, you know, interesting. It's like, this is not new. This is not new. Mm. And it's not something new that I've been saying, but perhaps it's new that I'm putting it out there so that, you know, you can read it, you can hear it. And, and I think that's part of our kind of our mantra. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a bit of a, like, I've got to ask you guys, actually. I know you've covered a lot about me, but I've, do you feel less hindered to speak your truth now? Do you, because I, I definitely do. I think, you know, what's happened over the last few months has been really interesting in terms of um, Black Lives Matter movements and watching major companies going, oh, we need to do more. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm praying and I'm hoping that's really authentic. But, you know, are you now at the point as individuals where you're like, you know what, sod it. Like, I can't be asked. <laughs> anymore either you take me for who I am or layers mate yeah I would definitely say that I'd say I had the conversation actually with somebody at work last week and I've always been quite vocal in Black History Month because it's the time where regardless of wherever I've worked they've always been actually Steph would be great for this so (laughs) so I said to this lady at work I said I feel like every day is Black History Month for me now because regardless of what day what agenda what meeting I feel confident to have a black voice or a black narrative or a female black narrative whereas before I would contribute but i I would feel quite hesitant to have a conversation that could be awkward for my peers. Now, 
don't care as long as it's valid as long as it's balanced and adds value I will I feel confident to bring it to the table and if it makes people feel uncomfortable you know that's where change happens I think I think change is uncomfortable change can be a stretch for people but I do think if I don't use my platform at work or with my friends or within my family or wider nothing will change and I think just to go back on what you said earlier Ayo about education I don't think I was best placed probably about two years ago to be able to back up what I was feeling because I didn't know enough I didn't have the resources I didn't have the you know I wouldn't say that I was dumb you know you know but I just don't think I knew enough about black British history to have an articulate argument with somebody so if back in the day I was feeling uncomfortable about a conversation I wouldn't be able to have a, a real balanced viewpoint as to push back to people as to why I'm feeling awkward or why you can't say the n-word in a song or you know just defining just feelings and um situations or experiences whereas now because of afro leads and because of I suppose my you're a product of your surrounding aren't you mm. the more you surround yourself with you know weapons to have an argument or to defend yourself the better skilled and more confident you feel so I think that's helped my journey no end. So I do feel more confident, but it's because, again, I've, I've educated myself and I think that's been the biggest change with me, I'd say. I think education is fascinating, though, as well. And I think we're also at a point where there is no excuse for others not to educate themselves. I'm talking about the white mainstream yeah. in many ways. I don't think you should, they should be coming to you all the time, Steph, to be the spokesperson for Black people. No, like, <laughs> something I find so interesting is allyship, really. There's a female footballer called Leah Williamson who plays for Arsenal, an England player, and she's a white, blonde woman. And she's recently just co-founded a, a platform for Black history and understanding Black lives and stuff like that. And I thought it was so powerful recently because, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to maybe work with her sooner interview her because I think that sort of feels like the natural evolution where white people are also taking it on board and, and taking that putting that backpack on their back and seeing what it feels like a little bit because you know I, I think what's been interesting for us and back to people coming to you for Black History Month is that people are expect we're expected to talk about in yeah. different expected to talk about black lives and black history but actually and, and you know the, the issues that surround black people permeating their way through British culture. But you know, if if that comes from a white person, a white respected person that holds so much more credence, like in general, I think we, that's where we sort of start seeing seismic change um, very quickly. It's back to my discussion about the woman who didn't understand black people couldn't swim. Like, you know, if that came from a white person, like that's like, woo, hold on. What and, and and I I think that's 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 how we move forward and it becomes a collaboration instead of just dumping it on a black person to to, to to make that change really because we are the status quo in many respects and the status quo needs to educate itself it needs to do its work as well um, in order for this to be a holistic change moving forward definitely and and throughout history that's been shown that it has been a collaboration it can't just be one voice coming from one side because that that a few people might listen but not enough. To, to make a change, not enough to dismantle what's causing the barrier and the injustice to, towards people. And it, it's just so important that we all, I think we all, wherever we're placed, we all have a platform, big or small. You know, what things are you gonna let slide in the coffee room at work or- Yes, yes. These there, that's the kind of thing that makes change. And some mm. of it is just a chipping away of, oh, wow, well, what, what, from whatever ethnicity you are, somebody making a comment, well, a, know that you don't share that view and B, that they probably won't kind of pollute your mind with that as well. But then it might 
cause you know tiny kind of ripples of change for them to think well is what I'm saying thinking doing harmful to somebody else and it, it you know hopefully cause change there I, I think you know I'm being a bit more realistic about a lot of stuff and it's not even been negative necessarily I'm just I think we just need to be a little realistic as well because I don't think we'll ever eradicate racism personally but I just think people we will be I mean just based on the systems that we live in right but I, I just think what we will see is a seismic shift into a lot more people being aware of, of, of what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, there are so many people that still want to hold on to what was that notion of nostalgia, the greatness of what this country was or their, you know, and that's obviously notion of privilege. And we get that. Um, I, I think for us, and you're right, is that we just keep stoking the fire moving forward. You know, we can't allow this just to be a moment, you know, already even talking to my parents, you know, I'm sure you've spoken to your parents, like this is very different to anything they've ever seen like in their time my mom's just like you know I can't believe white people are helping you know and I thought that that was really powerful from her point of view you know know, that that that's what really feels so much more different you know a lot of those protests actually especially in London like predominantly white protests like you know and I was just like wow this is actual madness it really is like it's 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 incredible and that does fill me with hope and you know I think where we can in our positions of power in our little bubbles and stuff that's where we can always start to start making the difference you know like i think you know mass change can happen but like i think we also need to just focus on what we can feasibly change and school systems that we're surrounded by the working environments we're surrounded by and leave that lasting impact to try and create those allyships that we really really need moving forward that's how we start to see it you know in in our general towns in our general cities you know britain can do what it does as a mass scale but you know what i can control is what's within my bubble what's within within my vicinity and i'm hoping that that education on an individual basis starts permeating and starts moving forward and escalating out towards people you know i know friends are going i've just had a really difficult conversation with my parents for the first time you know um and i i i'm really surprised that my who i thought my white liberal parents were aren't as liberal as they thought they were and actually that's the change you know children talking to their parents you know that's really really fantastic you know and i, I think that's that's that stuff leads me definitely with a, with an optimistic outlook moving forward that's what i mean by our own little bubbles our own our own immediate people you know white black cuban or asian like you know it's, it's sorry i just quote miami by will smith um, but like, it's, like you know it, it's true like i just sort of yeah i think that's where the the real power and you know that hopefully what that leads to is their parents start talking to their friends and going oh i was just talking to blah 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 my daughter just brought this up we've never really thought about this have we you know that's really really interesting i, I do think also you know for our generation, it's slightly different. It, it, it's the 50 pluses that, you know, I'm really like, you know, that a lot of those people still hold the, the major power in, in, in this country. You know, they vote a particular way as well. Like, and that that's where a lot of work needs to be done because they've benefited hugely from a system that's hugely biased towards white people in many respects. You know, it still is to a certain degree, but they're the ones that are now in CEO level. They're the ones that are now in directorship that can change seismically the way their companies operate you know and then that's what for us for me anyway that's you know another sort of string to my bow really like we, i run a cultural intelligence consultancy with two other friends for us it, it's about using our lived experiences as as people of color and also as what people might class as foreigners in this country to work with major institutions in bringing that kind of change and we, we had this wonderful moment um, a few weeks ago where we worked with a, a startup we had this mad sort of sit down where the ceo and black members of staff and white female members of staff and whatnot 
kind of got together and just thrashed out workplace practices and moments in which where, um, you know, some of them might not have been able to come forward as their authentic selves, even within this sort of workplace structure. And we had, I, I swear, you know, perhaps there are things that I've brought into the workplace that are very toxic. And there are things that because of the way I view my life in terms of, you know, excellence and blah, 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 I've actually nullified people's voices. And then you have this sort of flip moment where an employee was like, it's all right, mate, like you're, we, we really like you. Like we really think you're amazing and like blah, blah, blah. And it was so magical. And I was just like, that is it. It's the conversation. Yeah. And, and that's all we're encouraging. It is the conversation and a space to be heard and a space to be listened to and a space to be validated because of who you are as a person, you know, and I, and I think that's sort of a, a blanket sort of term for what we need to do as a country. I think in, in Britain in general, we do shy away from difficult conversations. Difficult conversations needn't be pigeonholed to a point where we need to have a talk. It should just be part of the lexicon of society it should just be part of what we do. We should be able to have honest, open, difficult conversations and go get pissed like together. Like it should all work in harmony because that's how we fundamentally bring change. And that's where we see seismic changes where the conversation and people, you know, leaders in companies, the 50 pluses, whatever, are encouraging environments where people are able to start bringing up these conversations and, and being listened to. And by that, we are deconstructing what we were and understanding and opening up to something that might be new. And actually, I think one thing I always wanted to stress is that that can be so good for your business. If everyone's bringing their A game to the table, how much more profitable, how much more efficient will that be as a general society? And that, I think that is feasible, but it will take time. You've got two different types of people. There are people that are willing to have the conversation and people that are not. So the fact that you're invited in that company shows that company's got a different kind of mindset or approach. You know, it was in the news a few weeks ago that um, certain MPs wouldn't even entertain the idea of going to unconscious bias training. So yeah. they're not even willing to have... I mean, that's not, not just one way, but there is a problem. This is mm. somebody's proposed way to try and highlight some issues if there are some within you personally that may be causing harm to somebody else why wouldn't you want to know about it that that goes back to why i i fundamentally think you know the that the, the full utopia of like no racism existing or whatnot I, I think we need to be realistic about it because there you know there are two camps you know and then there are definitely people who defiantly don't want to have the conversation and you know if, if we're having more people openly speaking about this and challenging each other white people challenging each other then those that don't want to have the conversation start thinking you know what i'm actually a bit of a minority here <laughs> maybe i might need to flip it up a little bit or at least adopt something well let, let me just see what all this <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know you, you already mentioned about a conversation you had with producer about swimming and mm. it, i do still wonder about you know with your swimming challenge was that your idea? Because is that how you got into swimming by doing this challenge? And if so, was that your idea to do it, to really challenge yourself, to get a record in a sport? That yeah, you yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, like my producer, I knew it was going to be my last year on Blue Peter and, you know, done five years and, you know, for, for, for all its wonderful 118 different cities around the world, BAFTA nominations, racing license, skydiving license, you know, swimming world record, you know, I'd had enough. Um, I just wasn't, I didn't know what was next. And as, as I would find out after I left, I didn't really go on to much for a while. And I just knew that I need to pursue new things. And, you know, I said to my boss, I was like, this is probably going to be the last thing I do. We just, I just want to make it big and 
almost make like a, a massive statement to say, you know, I've done my five years and I've done it well. And he's like, um, you know, you go away and think about it. And I thought I'm 28 years old and I can't swim. Um, and I've been putting it off for so long for so many reasons. And I learned when I came to the UK, but not properly. Like my swim teacher was really bad. And I was one of a few kids that I couldn't swim in the class. And I, by the time I'd arrived, everyone else was swimming. And I just felt like I was sort of cast aside, really. It was really not the best experience. So I thought, yeah, okay, let's do this. And so many ideas came through. Um, I basically wanted to do this thing where I'd spend the least amount of time in the water and get out. <laughs> like, you know, I'll do 25 metres. And he was like, look, we, we, that, that's not going to make a good half-hour film, is it? And I, I was like, no. So um, it was actually a suggestion to do the challenge by my actually incredible producer, a guy called Richard Turley, who just loves really weird and wonderful stories and I guess you know regardless of ethnicity and you know the ethnic makeup of the office of Blue Peter that's what was interesting because it had some of the most highly educated people in the country and that's where we got the nuance of the stories you know and Rich brought this to the table and he also said you'd be the first person ever you know to, to do this and I thought to myself how many black people do you see swimming man like that's just not heard of at the time I think Colin Jones um USA swimmer had won a gold medal he's the first ever black man to have a sort of a swimming world record and a, a swimming gold medal I think and then I think Elliot Atkinson's Jamaican swimmer at the time had just equaled the 50 meter breaststroke world record so I was like okay there's, there's, there's stuff happening here and I could be I would have been the third ever you know at the time black world swimming world record holder in in in, in the world so yeah I mean that that's what what really spearheaded it really for me to do it and you know the the reaction at the end of it with the little press coverage that it got was was absolutely marvelous and it wasn't even just from black people a majority of white people was they can't swim and and that's where i think what's really important um to, to to realize in britain and i think even with this black history month is that it's not our story it's everyone's story yeah, yeah, and i think yeah. that's what needs to flip a little bit you know the 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 white producer telling me oh this isn't a thing she wasn't seeing it as something that affected her as well like you know over millions of people period regardless of ethnicity can't swim so she was seeing a black story she wasn't seeing everyone's story and that's what really annoys me is that like everything back to black instruments has to be pigeonholed in this particular time it's all part of our discussion it's all part of who we are like because we're all you know living on this in this country we're all sharing the same spaces so why do you see it as a different story to yours you know and then that's what's been really interesting and then obviously i went on to create the other swim challenge after i left blue peter where i took you know 15 people and taught them to swim in 10 weeks and then um a few of them came up to do the great north swim with me and for me i took that to the brand i took that to speedo because i was like you guys are the, are the forward-facing swimming brand everyone knows speedo and you are doing nothing for ethnicities. And it's because they saw no power in that story. And, you know, it was wonderful because they sort of wanted to be silent partners, which was great for me because it allowed me to do something. But um, they gave us some money to sort of put it together. And I got bits of money from all, all over the place. And what I wanted to do there was redesign how we teach people to swim. Because what I realized, regardless of ethnicity, was that a lot of people didn't focus on people's entry into the water. People didn't realize that you know, people are actually scared of the water. Like, that's not just the thing. When we deal with the fear, people start to move forward rapidly. People's fear of drowning is so massive that people didn't realise that because they've got this weird, sad, and I hate to say it, like fantastic, 
question of oh when we all love to swim it's a real middle class ideal of all you know meadows and you know wild swimming in rivers and things like that it's great but that's not the journey of every person that's just a journey of your little bubble of people so did it and what's been really gutting over time is that my relationship with was never really and this is not me being bitter i just think institutions do this a lot by they hadn't nurtured that relationship like the insight i brought to the table were valuable to the point where I had a meeting with Speedo two years later and then we're, they were going we really like what you've done so we, we've, 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 we've done some research and we realised in Speedo that we need to do more with people's entry into the water what do you think and I was like this is a project I dropped on your table two years ago yeah. and it's how I wasn't allowed to own that position of power yeah. like the, the institution yet again is like wiping me out of history and going well look what we created because you know, having a black person tell white people what to do is still not... Not the norm, is it? We haven't dealt with it. I, I, I still don't think a lot of people can deal with that, you know, and, and us being in positions of power where we're able to drive campaigns that could affect the nation at large is still not seen as, you know, something that, that there's allowed. And it's back to sort of that who gets to sit on the table, who gets to make those decisions. Would you step aside and let me take the glory for this? Because your, co- your company, who's got millions and millions of followers, also got millions and millions of pound sales worldwide, haven't even thought about it. And that's because you've got no one that looks like me in your offices. So having to readdress so many of the things but yeah I mean for me it, it's about I guess being an example always has been really in every job that I do whether it's now in sport whether it's uh, the factual stuff that I've done whether it's the the Blue Peter you know that notion of being the first is something that's driven me for a while and I'm sort of now at the point where I'm tired of being the first because there are now more people coming through and now I just want to follow my real passions and dreams that you know will really make me and allow me to sort of be my more, most authentic self really and the stuff that gets the best out of me are human stories you know and so that's why we started a production company me and i've met a friend and you know luckily you know channel four is sort of taking us in to sort of help accelerators and it's to try and take a bit more control in telling those stories you know and it's not just black stories i'm from the regions you know you guys are from up north in, in yorkshire like from for me i love accents i love i love the stories from up north i think the regions should be represented more like you know inner city stories shouldn't just be London-based. Like, all these stories of, you know, of progression and whatnot of Britain shouldn't be London-based. Like, the regions have contributed so more through colour, through culture to this country than, than London, really. And I, I love that, you know. I lived in Yorkshire, I lived in the Midlands, I lived in Lancashire, you know, I lived in Kent. You know, I've got a real rounded view of Britain and I really love a lot of aspects of Britain and I just want to bring them to the forefront in the most authentic way possible, really. What's the name of your production company? Called it milk first. Milk first. What's you know why? Milk first. The name. It's it's lovely. But is there sort of a, is there anything behind it? It's, it's, it's how you make a brew, really. We, <laughs> <laughs> milk we first. It. So if you put the milk first before anything else, that's not how to make a brew. That's not how you do it. Tea bag first. Let it brew. And then add the milk. Yeah. Right, okay. and that's it. But you know, but so so actually, we actually realised this uh, that um, we're looking into it more, and it's so weird because we, we, me and Alex are actual geeks. Is that actually uh, historically the reason people put milk in teacups first is because of the fine bone china that people used to use back in back in the day. So actually, by putting hot tea into a glass, it crack into a mug, it cracks it or a tea um, a teacup. So by putting the milk, you cool the teacup, oh. and then you add the hot tea which is brewed in a tea tea uh, pot yeah. and then you know that's why people put milk first but then they started doing it with tea bags which is dumb because you still need to let the tea brew but it's a whole different discussion 
I love it. I'm really excited about um, obviously the production company. That sounds amazing. So it leads very nicely onto our Melanie Magic question, which we ask all of our guests. But I'm super excited as to your answer to this one. So the question is, what are your hopes and dreams for the Black British culture and business sectors over the next five to ten years? And how do you think we're going to get there? So any insight on how we're going to get there too? Yeah, I think what's been interesting over the last few years is the encouragement of the Black Pound in many respects and spend Black and something that's really been pushed out across many bases. And I think especially what's been happening over the last few months, why people have been encouraged to look at the products they buy as well. And I think also for us, it's, it's ownership, you know, um, let's face it. Every single black hair company I go into is is not run by black people, which is, which is saddens me hugely. And, you know, that, you know, black hair and black skin products, whatnot, we need to take ownership of that. You know, we really need to be the the singers of our own songs in many respects. And I think now's the time, if any, uh, that we're a lot more conscious as a, as, as a group of people, whether you be Caribbean Black, South American Black, African Black, to really start taking hold of what we are and what we buy. And I think, you know, because of the advent of the internet, because of the advent of things like Instagram, um, so many other more smaller boutique platforms are now able to start reaching audiences, not even within this country, but also in the United States, where there's a huge black currency. I think that for me feels like the future in a, in a really organic way. Naturally, more black leaders in positions of power is fundamentally the, the overall push here is that you know decision makers need to be black you know to to create platforms and within banks you know people for many years banks were unfairly penalizing people of color when it came to bank loans and mortgages you know those kind of things need to be dismantled in many respects and that comes from black ceos on top of some of the major banks in this country i, I feel like now's a better time than anything you know because also we don't have to adhere to the traditional spaces you know even if you look at banking you look at the likes and i know it's not black owned but you look at the likes of sterling bank and things like monzo that are kind of flipping around how you deal with banking you know you don't have to go to a branch anymore so that should be scope for opportunity for us as a community to really start looking at how we come at it differently we don't even need to look at the old traditional ways of, of doing things anymore there are fundamental more sustainable ways of looking forward to be smaller but also be more impactful and i think this idea of having a bit more of a social impact is something that resonates with so many people. Why have you started your business? What's the story behind it? And who is it talking to? And, you know, it, I, I think it can work. And I think authenticity behind it is, is, for me, the key to it moving forward. People see themselves in the product. People understand where the product comes from, whether it be a conscious product or, you know, maybe may a bit more commercial. Who, 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 it doesn't matter. But people need to see themselves in, in, in products and people need to understand why it's for them. And I, I think fundamentally, Mentally, we can therefore start increasing that black currency, that black pound to furthermore sustain these businesses, but also permeate out the wider groups of people, as in the status quo, white, white businesses as well. Amazing. Gosh, yeah, I, could listen to, I could listen yeah. to you talk <laughs> all day. Um, and I totally agree with all of that. And I think this whole generate the next generation will, if that happens, gosh, we're just going to flourish, aren't we? The stuff that we've gone through, etc., might be not necessarily completely diminished, but definitely reduced um, moving forward if we kind of have a, a better economy, more pride, more education, 
oh, it just is. I mean, the fundamental issue is, and you know, we, we talk about it idealistically, but I just, I just do think that, like, you know, if, if the government's not on board, then it, it puts a massive stop to anything we want moving forward in terms of equality. Like, if we've got a government in charge that doesn't see economic benefits in ethnicity, then you know, then sod it. You know, like we're gonna have to look elsewhere, really. And I think that's where the the internet or social media bypasses a lot. Mm. You know, it's already we're seeing the likes of Stormzy doing in coalition with the likes of Cambridge to bring scholarships through and all that kind of stuff, you know, and then what Cambridge have to do at the back end of that is look at the black experience and understand how um, young black students come into that environment and don't feel alienated, you know, and then they're able to permeate through that space properly, authentically and, and, and be listened to and also how their levels of education and professorships represent the students that the new students that they're bringing in and that's how the ripple effect begins, you know, then we start seeing power in numbers and then it's not a takeover it's just an alignment and this is what i'm trying to tell people people worry that oh this is a takeover like you know i hear i've heard people go oh have you noticed like it's, it's them or us it's not them or us it's an alignment of what should be like and, and that might take certain things dropping off a little bit for real authenticity and for realness to, 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 to come through really and i think that that has to be the future but you know people with major platforms black people with major platforms are able to now sort of bypass um, the lack of government support and start lifting people up from their own doorstep. It's really tricky, but I do have faith. I do have faith because we are seeing seismic movements with so many black stars now and, and black entrepreneurs taking ownership and trying to support black business and move them forward. And I think we just need to band together more as a community, Caribbean and African, South American, all need to come together in this one melting pot and really have ownership of it. And we need to understand more about ourselves. And I think fundamentally, when we understand the nuances around blackness that it's just not one homogenous race um we might have, some of us might have a shared history but not all you know east africa and west africa have a very different history <laughs> like in many respects and you know me versus caribbeans we have a shared history of slavery but like culturally there's French aspects of uh, Caribbean culture that I know nothing about. You know, there's so many Dutch aspects of Caribbean culture I know nothing about. The more we understand about ourselves, the more we can start building an alliance and allegiances, I think, moving forward. Honestly, you're just so good. Yeah. <laughs> you are so good. So how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, man. The best is uh, Instagram, really. Um, that's, that seems to be a really good portal and a good way to sort of connect with people. So Iowa Kimulari, very simple, at, uh, at Instagram. That's my that's my handle. And um, I guess Juju Music, uh one of my loves, um, I sort of DJ, it's not just West African music, but music um, that's been influenced by West African music period, which kind of opens up the door to so much from around the world, from hip hop to Afro beat to jazz to drum and bass or whatnot. Um, Juju Music, at Juju Music on Instagram, if you want to see some of the extracurricular activities that I get up to. That's all from us today. Thank you so much, Ayo. It's been a pleasure and honour. I know that our listeners would have got a lot from hearing you today. Definitely. And thanks to those tuning in. Join us again next time.